that's something too. I think <laughs> like annex this state or get rid of this state. And people are just like fucking casual about it. You're like, I don't think you really understand maybe what that state contributes. And I think that goes for a lot of states. If people are like Florida wants to secede and everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, fucking let them be like, you guys got to understand that. Like, first of all, no, it's, that's a ridiculous concept that would never occur. Like just the logistics of that alone. Mm-hmm. We like, fought wars to stay together. We're not just going to annex. The other thing, too, is you really think anybody in that state is really going to say the majority of that state is going to say, yeah, let's get out of here. Do you know what? Like I this does. I don't know if this sounds pro-government, but do you know what like government as far as nationwide government provides you as far as services and funding? Like you're literally hit by a fucking hurricane every three years. I think we talked about this, right? He was like, oh, every Florida three gets years? hit by hurricanes every year. Yeah. And there's damage every Correct. single year. What? Are you going to do like when you're supposed to be self-sufficient in your own thing? Like, are you, do you, do you, do you think you could keep yourself together? Well, the other part about that is how people become third world nations is because they have to survive that kind of shit without federal like funding to, for disaster relief. Or you just become everybody else's bitch. Like if Florida, if Texas or anything like that dropped off, maybe not Texas because they would all try to shoot their way out. Mm-hmm. But like if Florida annexed themselves, what's to stop them from being like, okay, well now Mexico wants Florida and Florida's like, no, we don't want that. They're like, hey, guess what, bitch? You're cut off from the U.S. Too bad. Yeah. Like Florida's not going to stand up to anywhere like that. And then you think the U.S. is really going to step in and be like, we just broke up. Yeah. <laughs> You're being like, save us. You said fuck NATO, so uh-huh. NATO's not going to help you out. Yeah. You said fuck America. America's not going to help you out. I love the California argument because I get – I've just kind of accepted like Florida – or California's probably like 20 years ahead of us in technology and thought process. Like we do need to start looking at electric shit. We do need to start worrying about putting solar panels California and shit like that. is that sibling – that's kind of like they're kind of hippy dippy a little bit, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. But they have like, and they can have some like kind of radical ideas. You know what California is? California was the relative that was talking about like Bitcoin, like at Thanksgiving the year before it like blew up. And, and I'm saying not saying that I don't. I, I don't know what fucking cryptocurrency is. I don't believe <laughs> in it. Like I don't know. I don't understand enough about it. But I, it sounds like just made up money. Uh-huh. And the fact that it's valued so high, I'm like, how did you just invent? I'm like, that's the greatest scam ever. If this actually is a thing, but they have that idea, or they're the first one that showed up with an electric car, and then all of a sudden they were like, gas prices started to go up, and they were like, how much did you pay pay for that? And he's like. This much, and then you see three electric cars at Thanksgiving the next year. Mm-hmm. So, California kind of seems like the one that's kind of weird until they have a good idea, and then you're like, oh, okay, there's some stuff coming out of there. Well, not to mention cutting off California, it's the fourth biggest economy in the world. Yeah. So, uh, we're talking country sizes. Yes. And that's just in California. So, if you're like, oh, we don't want California in America anymore, let's kick your ass out. Boom, you just lose the fourth biggest economy in the world. And that's on the rankings with the U.S. as well. So yeah. that's we're going to take a hit there. Here's the thing, Texas too. is the same way. Here's the thing, too, that I don't think is under... And I think this this will go actually into the topic today. People don't understand that with um, the military that they're like, you know, we're going to have a standing military and everything. Okay, the population of California is pretty big. And if part of the condition of California seceding was that there was mandated military service for certain males and for like certain people, they could have as many troops gathered up as our current standing military does. 
No, no, no. Because remember, we talked about this in a previous episode that our standing military is not super huge at any given time. That's why it's a rarity if you actually do see a veteran, even though you think you see them all the time, mm-hmm. that it's like, oh, you're you're that lower percentage that is is doing that duty. So like you've you've served in a in a smaller sect of people. Like, I don't think that they would be like a warring. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. If they were forced into military action. If they were forced into military action. Yeah. What I'm also saying is that being the fourth largest economy in the world, with militaries, how much of the innovation in military is fueled by private sector businesses? Lockheed Martin. um, I'm trying to think of some. Lockheed is the only one that really comes like. um, What's the one that was. Oh, fucking. Are you talking about military? The military industrial complex. But like weapons designers and builders. So Lockheed was the airplane designer. Um, and builds all is, like the yeah. is. Then you have Halliburton. It's Halliburton, right? Halliburton's oil, but they do fucking everything too. There's a couple other like military ammo companies, yeah, different things like that. The design weapons and everything. But those people are also those are private businesses, which means that mm-hmm. someone else can pay for their services as well. Which means California having the fourth largest economy. What's to say they don't just outbid for a couple of those? Or and what's I'll, to say that they don't go into Silicon Valley and like, hey? We need attack drones that can drop fucking anything that you want, and they just fight the battle in the air. Yeah. Like, if we can send out 70,000 mm-hmm. attack drones, that's probably going to be more effective than just boots on the ground. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's just very short-sighted is when people make those arguments. It's very off-the-cuff without ever thinking of, like, the realistic ramifications. And I'm not saying it'd be like California would, like, rule the world or anything. I'm saying that... Well, part of being an American is embracing everything that gets thrown at us. And not to mention, even if they are the weird cousin at Thanksgiving, they're still contributing. Like, I want to say for every dollar that they send to the federal government in tax money, they get like 82 cents back. Mm -hmm. So they're providing. They're propping up some other states. A lot of states. Yeah. So, I mean, they're doing their part. Even if they are the weird cousin or whatever, Mm -hmm. they're still providing a very valuable service for a country that needs that. I mean, if they started slapping an import or export tax on 25% of the country's vegetables and fruits and shit, it would make a ton of money. But we'd have to do it. Mm -hmm. You know who else seems like would be like the weird cousin at like Thanksgiving? This guy, Vernon Wayne Howell. (laughs) He sounds familiar, but I don't. I'm not recognizing the name. I don't recognize the name. What was his uh, the name that he's known by? Oh, David Koresh. Which. I like when a cult leader changes their name because they take on this whole new identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of guys that did it. Uh, How many people know, though, if you were to go and ask somebody, and they know actually about the Branch Davidians, and they know they've heard the name David Crush, how many would actually know that that wasn't even his real name? Because that's... I didn't know that wasn't his real oh, name. Really? Started, no, I didn't know that was his... Yeah. A lot of them just hit up aliases. It's like when we did Anton LaVey, and his name yeah. was, like, his middle name was Anthony, and that's why he chose Anton. And then it, you what have was to. His, what was his real name? It was something horribly embarrassing, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't anything good. All right. Well, also, Vernon Wayne Howell, that doesn't have, like, 
You can't. That's like VWA chain isn't even. Oh, his was way better. What? Um, oh, I guess that was his because his middle name was Zenzibar. Oh, that's right. What was his real name? Howard Stanton. <laughs> Howard Stanton Levey. Oh, okay. Okay. How? That's right. It was Howie. Howie Levey. Okay. Vernon though was not much better, so I could see why you would change your name. But also, did you read into how the name came about? Mm-hmm. Um, he took David for King David, and then which cr- do you do you think that that was also kind of when he took that name? That was a way to put him like in a very like identifiable position within the Davidians. They take a lot of like a lot of the David stories out of the Bible is a lot of what they learn about. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like an ode to that. I don't think it's necessarily like a David versus Goliath choice that he made. No, I don't think that. What I'm saying though is he was so that's kind of the fascinating thing is like a lot of people know about Waco. And you kind of, you learn about the standoff of Waco, and we're gonna get into that too. But learning about like LaVey himself and not just how he grew up, but kind of some of the moves that he made. So he he wanted to take over the that section of the Branch Davidians. He wanted to be their prophet, their leader. And to do that, I mean, he picked the name David. David Davidian. I mean, I thought it was a situation where at one point in my life, when I heard the Davidians, I thought they called themselves the Davidians because he was their leader and his name was David. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, if you didn't, imagine you didn't know about this and you're like, this guy's name is David Koresh. He's the leader of the Branch Davidians. What does that sound like? I, it sounds like they're just are beholden to him as a prophet. That's what I mean. That like, never even still like crossed my mind. Yeah. Huh. So I think that was part of the reason he would take the name David is because he always had it in his head that he was going to be the leader of this. What do we want to refer to this as? It's be- called... It it's is, it's a movement technically, but it's a cult. Does anybody in a cult recognize that it's a cult? In a in a real cult? Uh, I, I, I guess in a lower in do. the lower positions. If you're in the higher positions and control, you're like, oh yeah, this is a cult. I, but uh, this one is so weird because David had these things called mighty men, and like one of them, like his right or left hand man was a lawyer that was a practicing lawyer. So he understood law. He was yeah. a, a Harvard-educated man, I want to say. That's what I'm saying is that's how I think it gets lost as a cult because I understand that this this situation was a cult. But this branched off of like an actual recognized religion, like Seventh-day Adventists. And then you had this branch off of the Davidians, and then you get this one where it's the branch Davidians. So it's like a division of a division of a division. But because you're coming off of a, I guess a legitimate legitimized religion, it's not like you're starting a cult from scratch. It's not that hard. You're coming in. He came into something that already had a structure to it and simply, I think turned it into a cult. I don't think he started a cult. No, he, he just took a lot of malleable minds and then kind of shaped him to what his, his way is. I was going to get into it a little later, but we can kind of talk about this before we talk about him. Okay. Cause I find it very interesting just with the way that religions work. There are like end time religions mm-hmm. and then which preach the second coming, they preach the rapture. Yeah. You're reading into revelation a lot. 
And then there's regular religions, kind of like um, different sects of Christianity that don't really focus on the second coming. They just focus on like the... It's the afterlife. It's getting... There's no end right now. It's just about your life. The end of your life is what you're trying to live. You're, that's the message, I guess. Yeah. It's Instead of a doomsday, it's just being as good of a person here now so you can get to heaven. Like yes. you're not worried about the rapture yes. or anything like that. Yeah. And... Uh, Seventh-day Adventism came from something called Millerism, which was a guy named William Miller. And he was just always trying to predict when Jesus would come the second time. Mm -hmm. So he would fire out a date. That date would get close. He'd be like, that's not going to happen. This, I think I've brought this up to you before. This always, because this is a common theme within these like cult, slash religions. Mm. It always reminds me of Parks and Rec, where in the town in Pawnee, there's this small, like, localized religion called the um, Reasonableists. Is that later seasons? Uh, Yeah, it is. It's, like, season three or four when they first, like, come in on it. You got to get Parks and Rec, that show. You got to kind of give the first season a pass because it's finding its footing. And then season two... I Look at season two as, the, like, the start of it because that's when it finds kind of its... It's a good show. Yeah, we've watched, I think, all of them maybe up to, like, season four or five. Mm-hmm. But so, but anyway, these reasonableists, it's basically a cross of, like, um, kind of like Elrond or uh, Scientology. So, basically, this guy wrote a – I'm getting off track here, but it's going to play back into this because this is how ridiculous all this stuff can be. Mm-hmm. This guy wrote a book about um, organizing your office, and it was called Organize It. And he got really famous because it was this book that a whole bunch of offices throughout like the 70s used. Because isn't that what L. Ron Hubbard, someone got their start at? They did a book that was like a business-related book, and then their next one was just batshit crazy. L. Ron is a fiction writer. I know, but I want to say he did something like that. Anyway. I'm pretty sure he was just straight fiction okay. because that's where he – he basically told everybody, hey, I'm going to write this book and turn it into a religion. Like, fuck you, dude. Gotcha. And so did. this guy, he's like – so he had an idea about organizing stuff. And that was a big hit. And he's like, in addition to the idea about organizing stuff, he happened to also think that the universe was ruled by a 50-foot lizard with a volcano for a face called Zorp. And so he wrote a second book, and it was called Organize It To Engage With Zorp. Dude, how do I not remember this? I don't know. It was hilarious. But anyway, in the book, there's a guy that's now like the leader of that movement, and he keeps predicting the end of days when Zorp will come and devour everyone's souls. And so they rent a place in the park where they basically just kind of hang out and just like smoke weed and watch the stars. And they like bring this, the, it's called like the nectar of something. And what it really is, is it's just like a jungle juice type fucking alcoholic drink. It's just, <laughs> and they, and so, but when it doesn't happen, you know, they're like, oh, I misread the texts. It's supposed to happen on this date. Can we make another reservation at the park? I, and that's, we still see this shit front and center today. Uh, Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, yeah. the ones that killed the kids, <laughs> they were a part of a LDS offshoot that believed in the end days. They believed that they were the two shepherds that were supposed to lead the 144,000 into the rapture and make it through to the end. And that was how they were going to start their, their thing, was in it 144,000 people. That's why they went to a rural area. That's why they were trying to bring everybody in. Like, just... The whole thought process behind that is there's such a sliver between religion and cultism that once you jump that small little bit, you're just full blown. Like there's no, there's no cult light. Here's the thing though. 
is a religion, a cult that just gets so big that it's not taboo anymore. Religion has redeeming qualities. I don't think cults do. Yes, they do. Cults have redeeming qualities? Just listen, just listen. There are probably... Okay, here's the thing. Is if it doesn't have a redeeming... Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess you threw my... God damn it. I thought I was going to go somewhere with this. What I was going to say is... You were about to blow my mind. What I was going to say is something wouldn't have the ability to get big enough if it didn't adopt some redeeming quality. So I'm saying what could start out as a cult technically, that could grow. And if that got big enough, maybe the people would find redeeming qualities within it. Like, what was the thing with, um, you would consider it a cult, the thing with the guy up in Oregon that they had the Netflix documentary on that was Schwarmy or, oh, fuck, what was his name? Oh, you're talking about, um, Harry Krishna's. Not Harry Krishna's, it was, um, Jesus, what was this thing called? There was an entire Netflix show on it. It was a while ago. That was old Netflix, I want to say. That was like when they first started dipping no. their toes into real documentaries. No, this thing was, it was more recent. Um, it was like five or six years ago. You're talking about that they lived up in a little convent up in Oregon. But they turned it into like a city and then they, they took well, they over the... they came down into the town and tried to take yeah. over the town. What was that called? <sighs> Cult in Oregon. I want to say they were Harry Krishna's. It wasn't Harry Krishna's. We'll go into Harry Krishna's. They, they Raj, Rajni Puram? Yeah. That's not Harry Krishna's. I want to say Ranj, that was... Ranjish was... Rajneesh was the... Like, the religious leader. That's right. Yeah, they had that big, huge village, and they... Okay, anyway. But yeah, what I... I guess what I'm getting at is... Maybe the... Because if you look at religions, they do... Do have redeeming qualities, but they also do require you to exhibit cult-like behaviors. Like, you got to take the bad with the good. Your whole balancing act... Christianity has its entire history with bloodshed and fighting over and fighting in the name of God and killing other people because they believed in other gods. But the thing is, is they had so much staying power that they were able to morph into something more palatable. People over time forgot about all that shitty stuff that they did in the name of God. And now because they donate and they built churches and they have this beautiful message and all this kind of stuff, all of that's forgiven. If a cult gets longevity or gets far far enough down the line and gets big enough, I think that that's going to be from a business standpoint because that's what religion kind of comes down to. People are trying to get as many followers. It's the same thing a business model. Mm-hmm. A cult is only going to get bigger at a certain point if they have a more positive message that reaches out to more people, a broader message that brings people in to make them bigger and more profitable. So cults normally get snuffed out at the cult phase of it because what happened in this scenario and how many cults end up getting snuffed out by like government intervention, government intervention. I'm not saying that they shouldn't because this shit is crazy. (laughs) What I'm just saying is that I think that really thinking about it, every religion has started off as a small offshoot that could be considered a cult by the larger dominant religion of the time. You think Christianity was originally, when it first started in that small group, it was probably recognized as a cult. Because they all followed this one guy. And he was known to do some crazy shit, apparently, 
at the time? It, uh, when you start looking at it that way, I can see how you would kind of picture it as kind of one and the same. Like the Venn diagram, there, there's a big overlapping in the center. The biggest part about something being a cult over religion is the actual physical hold that that cult has on you. Because if you just stop going to Catholic church, you're going to get maybe like one or two calls. Yes. And they're going to be like, Hey, where are you? You're like, yeah, not really into it. Correct. But I think initially a lot of religions start out like that and then they branch out to become more casual. You don't think that you were just like able to leave the church. You would probably be persecuted if you left the church. Yeah, but I but think, I think a lot of these people the that helped start it were so invested that they just lived that. That was their life. Imagine if that was just your job. Like a lot of people that followed, I think, like, you know, Jesus around because I'm sure he was at some point a real person. I, I probably I believe that. Yeah. But there were a group of people that followed him around and that they just slept, you know, slept and ate and breathed Jesus. And they that were, was their job. They were devoted to him. Exactly. I think there were casual Jesus followers, though. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, he's in town. I'll go see him talk, but I'm not going to follow him anywhere. Correct. And so with this one starting out, so how did the, like, how did that guy end up starting the Seventh-day Adventist? Like, where did he get that? Sorry, I'm getting back into the actual topic. Yeah, so back, back into it. William Miller had something. He said basically that Jesus was going to come 1843, 1844. He kept fucking up, fucking up. He was wrong. He was wrong. Then October 22nd, 1844, he's like, this is it. Jesus is going to fucking be here. I bet my life on it. Yep. The the whole group got together, and I want to say there was like 100,000 of them, like a, a fairly large that size. Many? Yeah, he he had a decent following. How did he Okay, so what was his Obviously he's not going to gain followers at all regardless of the amount if he doesn't have like a message. So what's the whole what's his whole spiel? What's his his gimmick? Preparation for the second coming. Okay, like, and you, then by oh, you're going to be that, saved in the rapture if you follow me. Gotcha. Only my followers as part of this are going to be, okay, mm-hmm. like, well, you're, you're going to die if you don't follow me. Exactly. Okay. We're, we're preparing ourselves to threat, ascend. Threat of threat of death. Okay. That day is called the Great Disappointment because they got together. They were no, all hanging out. No, it didn't out. happen. <laughs> yeah. And like, they literally watched the sun come up the next day. They're like, is that, is that Jesus? Oh, it's the sun. Okay, so it's the day How after. How did they expect him like he was going to rise over the mountaintop and they would be able to see him from the distance like... Was it going to be a tiny G, like, to scale Jesus, or just, like, giant Jesus is being resurrected? Like, is it an earthquake, and then he falls down? Are we talking, like, Galactus from, like, Marvel G, where he just, like, comes over the earth, he's like, ho, ho, Jesus is here. Just a gigantic mm-hmm. Jesus form. I I don't, I didn't get that far into how he was going to come back, but it's called the Great Disappointment, because that was basically, like, the end of the uh, Millerism, and then... As he lost followers, they moved into a Seventh Day Adventist, and Seventh Day Adventist, like a, a sect of his followers, did or yeah. he did. Okay, so he had nothing to do with the Seventh Day Adventist. No, nope. they were just an offshoot that continued kind of a. They liked hanging out together, like, hey, let's just keep this rolling mm-hmm. without the crazy dude. I we're gonna espouse some of his beliefs. We're gonna believe that there is a rapture. We're just gonna believe that we don't really know when it's coming, so we're gonna try to be prepared all the time. Okay, and their Sabbath day, I believe, is Saturday. I'm not. Super caught up on Adventists. I know that they're a little kooky, but fuck who isn't. The only thing I remember from the place that was uh, where I grew up was that their church didn't have any windows. And I thought that that was a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. 
Kind of like but, Mormon churches always have frosted windows so you can't see and don't know what's going on. Well, Mormon churches, from my experience, um, the actual meeting place within the church is never visible for even from the windows from the outside. No, there's the hall, it's surrounded by hall hallways, and then there's doors leading into like the main. There's classrooms, and then there's the sacramental yeah. hall. My only experience is knowing I going up and shooting hoops. They have gyms in them. Yeah, <laughs> there's a reason for it, man. It's yeah. it's, it's fellowship they know what they're doing. Yep. So after that, uh, there was another sect that broke off called the Davidians from the Seventh Day Adventists, and the Seventh Day Adventists just kind of let it happen because you really can't do anything about it. So the offshoot is the Davidians followed more of King David's part of the Bible, more of the old Testament shit, put a lot of effort into that. But also the same time too is uh, most of the, um, doomsday it's all old Testament. And it has to be because the new Testament's more of like a chronological, like there's, there's nothing as scary. It's fluffy compared to the old Old Testament is like, God's like, uh, uh, you done fucked up. Have some plague. If you're just strictly reading the Old Testament, you're going to have a bad time. I want to ask a question, but I don't want it to derail this because I feel like we just got back on. We can cut it. It's fine. Okay. With Old Testament and then going over into New Testament, do you think that we're recognizing this as a book of fiction? Just a very apparently well-written book of fiction with amazing staying power. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think that the offshoot, when they wrote the New Testament, they were looking at it and they were like, man, God's been kind of an asshole throughout this whole first book. So maybe in the second book, we have him do something that makes it seem like a big sacrifice he's doing for us to like kind of, because we need to get God back, you know, looking like on the pillar the glowing figure that we need him to be, not this vengeful guy that's just killed half the <laughs> fucking world's population through, like, floods and shit, and then let a guy on a boat and all that kind of shit and everything. Like, all the famine and everything. He's turning uh, villages into pillars of sand. At the end of the Old Testament, man, he kind of sounds like a bad guy. I'm just saying, but... He needed a comeback story yeah, in the New Testament. so they were like, what he's going to do is he's going to send his only son down here to die... For all of our sins, all the bad shit that we do, he's sending his son down there. Doesn't that like, I was really thinking about this the other night. Why? What's the rationale that he did that? That he sent his only son to die for uh, what we're doing? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. He's, uh, Jesus is more of like a a tool used as far as like somebody that you can say has absolved the world's sins because Jesus took all of our sins upon himself. And that's why he was sacrificed. Yeah. But he was, wasn't like sacrificed. He was killed by people. So like if he was going to be sacrificed and God wanted to redeem himself, why would he just have the people that he was dying for kill him? Like that kind of did. No, he, that's what I'm saying. That's what he had done. What I'm saying is that's that's not a sacrifice. He's just letting us kill his kid. Like He had to die for all of our sins. Yes, to be I understand, but we did it. It wasn't like God was like, now I'm going to take my son and to show how much I love all of you and absolve you all of your sins. I'm going to kill my son. It wasn't a Cain and Abel type thing where it was like, I know Cain and Abel, were, they were brothers, right? Mm-hmm. But like father, son thing. I want to get back to David Crush, because I feel like this could rebel. I just don't understand that whole concept of it. The, the whole starting point of it, 
for that, it's it's shaky. I don't want to read the rest of the book because it's the first part's bad. Yeah, there's just there's kind of like great resets in religion. Like you're gonna run into um, they, they do that in comic books. Yeah, except for they're not putting you all in a boat with two of every animal and then cleaning cleansing the world. That's been of evil. done in a comic, I'm guessing. Yeah. Or someone. Oh, I guess Thanos snapped and killed half the people, so... Yeah, and people have gone and harvested creatures from other planets to create them in zoos or preserves and then try to destroy... Oh, Brainiac does that. Brainiac de- grabs all the knowledge from worlds and then destroys the planets. And it's Superman. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay, anyway, getting back to getting back to the Davidians. Um, so, yeah, we have Davidism that spawned from the Seventh-day Adventists, then... The branch Davidians were just literally a branch of Davidians that separated themselves from the Davidians and called themselves the branch Davidians because it's kind of like LDS and LDSR, like Latter-day mm-hmm. Saint, Latter-day Saint reorganized. Keep the name, but just add another thing to the name for recognition to give it legitimacy, I guess. To separate us enough, but we're still kind of under that same umbrella. So technically, it's all still Seventh-day Adventism, but... There's just certain different beliefs that get taken down. And the Branch Davidians, it's so wildly interesting how Koresh kind of found them as far as how he infiltrated their whole game mm-hmm. and then took over. So uh, we've been calling him David the whole time. His real name, as we alluded to in the beginning, was Vernon Wayne Howell. He was born August 17th, 1959, so not long ago. I have a feeling that had he not died the way that he died, he'd probably still be alive today. Yeah, probably. He'd, he'd probably be old, but he'd be fairly... He'd, he'd still be with it. Uh, his parents were Bonnie Sue Clark, who was 14 years old, and his dad was Bobby Wayne Howell, who was 19. So there's already a little bit of weirdness mm-hmm. going on. Uh, luckily, Bobby got infatuated with another teenager and took off before uh, Vern was born. Then he gets abandoned by his mom at four, which can't be great. He gets left with his aunt, and his mom goes, and she ends up kind of marrying an abusive ex-con that wasn't real good for her. Comes back into his life when he was seven, and she kind of always still plays a little bit of a role in his life, but kind of like from the outside. I think it probably could be because of the abandonment kind of in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like He has a tough time trusting her enough to really be somebody that he leans on. So he's always kind of searching for a little bit of a mother figure, but he also got left so young that he has, it's kind of like he knows how to use older people, but he has an infatuation with younger people. Okay. Which it will, it's, well, I think they're, I think they're for different reasons. I think his infatuation with the older people is probably a mother figure thing. And then this infatuation with, I don't know what the infatuation with the younger people is. I, I, I think it was because in going through his life, like he dropped out of school in high school, he was dyslexic, so he always kind of felt like he was on the outside. Like he got pulled out of his classes and then put in special classes, yeah. so he was separated from his peers mm-hmm. even more. On top of that, he was a religious nut kind of from an earlier age. Yeah, I think he, I think one of the things that his mom would tell him is, you know, being in the special classes and everything that kind of hit him because he was, he got bullied for that. And his mom would tell him, it's like, would tell him that, you know, it's not an issue. You're just special. You have another, you have other gifts. And so I think part of that is he felt like his other gifts were spiritual type gifts. And that's why he got, he saw religion as a, as a safe place, which I think a lot of people do. 
and I like looking at this. I'm not saying any of this. You have to get down to who the person is, like kind of psychologically, I think. And I think uh-huh. that's kind of the cool thing about this is just trying to figure out how he becomes this guy that we're all going to know about from like how he developed. So I think part of it was that he found religion as a safe place and he almost found answers. He found like a, like a North star he could kind of aim toward. And yeah, he memorized scripture. He would preach, you know, um, schoolmates to schoolmates, which that sounds weird in itself, right? Like standing up during class and like, he would be out of of recess getting these guys attention and trying to do it, which that person's always going to be weird just because you're young and it's not really like a social thing that you do as a kid trying to preach religion to other kids. I don't know. Yeah. At any point in our country, was that ever a normal thing? Like you're, you're like at recess and you're all playing and you see like literally three kids huddled around and one of them just like preaching standing on just, top of a plastic milk crate uh-huh. and he's talking about jesus just just, like, jesus why don't they just fucking play tag or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's gonna push you away that's gonna kind of alienate you so i think his need to want that kind of relationship and then like his fanaticism really kind of fought each other because he wasn't Later on in his life, he tends towards kids real hard. And I yes. want to say it's because he never grew out of the social understanding of, like, just because you didn't get a crack at it now. Like, as you get older and you make adult friends, that'll be okay. You always kind of are looking for that. He he had this weird thing where, and I, I'm saying weird, not like weird, ha, 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 like weird. I'm saying, like, fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Where I don't think at a certain point he, like, the... um maybe because when he was a teenager and growing up, he didn't have like girlfriends or things like that. Or he felt like, cause I know that he ended up like when he was 19, he knocked up a 15 year old who terminated the pregnancy. The first one. Yeah. The first one. What I'm saying is I don't think he ever got out of that phase where his proclivity sexually evolved. With he was socially stunted at a younger uh, yeah, age. Yeah. Like he was attracted to that. It never like matured past that, that fucking so, like, as he became an adult, it was still, he still fucking somehow thought that was okay. Well, and he really kind of blended that into his beliefs because the 15 year old that he got pregnant, he, he didn't believe really in sex outside of marriage, obviously, being a religious person. Then once it did happen, he had, like, he was really guilt stricken by it. He was really torn down by it, ends up finding out that she's pregnant. Before he can really have a say at it, she's like, I took care of it, which I don't know how that worked back then, but I'm probably pretty sure it was easier. Uh, I took care of it. They end up getting together, and he moves into her parents' house with her, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't believe that premarital sex is bad anymore, but he refuses to He had an awakening in like that fucking two-month span. He's like, oh, this feels good, and I didn't get smited by God. Yeah. So... In his belief that premarital sex hard, is okay. That's a, that's a hard pivot. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick. <laughs> I think you wake up, you're like, wait, I didn't get punished for this. Maybe it's okay. What do you okay. mean you're okay with it? You said you weren't. That was two months ago, man. Come on. I'm a different person yeah. now. This is me now. I've grown. But he wouldn't use protection. Like He wouldn't mm-hmm. use contraceptives. 
He believed he, he didn't believe in contraceptives by religious he standards. Was a man of principle, and he knew where to draw the line. <laughs> He's like, I wasn't. Two months later, he might have been okay with contraceptives. I don't know. I finally found something that makes my dick feel good. Why would yeah. I want to put something mm-hmm. over it that numbs it? Yeah, I just. You've let me have steak. I'm not going to go back to eating hot dogs. <laughs> he ends up knocking her up again, and then he ends up getting kicked out, right? Yeah, her dad is just like, enough. You're not going to be a part of this kid's life. You can't be here. And he had hard feelings towards them because they kicked him out. And he's like, well, so you're cool with letting me stay in her bed, but you're not cool with me getting her pregnant? It's like, yes, there's a very defined line between those two things. Like, if you're not responsible enough to make sure that you don't get her pregnant again, you're not responsible okay. enough to sleep in her bed. <laughs> Here's the other thing. I, I'm not at all on Team Koresh here. What I'm saying, though, is like, what the fuck is that dad even thinking, those parents even thinking? Like, you finally got your daughter to a point where you can get her away from this guy. She's not pregnant anymore. Uh-huh. Separate that. Get your fucking daughter away from this fucking dude who knocked her up. Pull the weed at the root. Don't keep water. No it. shit. And then you're like, oh, instead, I'm going to have her have him move in. And then be able to sleep in my daughter's bed and not expect this. Like, he somehow is going to fucking be smart about it? No, you just gave them now an opportunity to have sex all the time. You turn them into rabbits. I, and I'd like to say that's where the weird finishes with his childhood. But no, because he goes back to living with his mom. They end up going to her... It's not a ward. Like, her congregation. Mm-hmm. And he starts to develop a very fine taste for the pastor's daughter. And Are I, we talking, is the pastor's daughter like, is this like the town in Footloose? I've never seen it. So the, the pastor's daughter is hot. I think this one was underage. I'm pretty sure she was underage. Okay. Just in the way it talks about Well, it I mean, if we're talking about the movie Footloose, technically in the movie Footloose... They're still in high school, but the actresses are all... We've had this discussion before. you got to separate the character from the actress. Julianne Howe, remember the chick from Dancing with the Stars, the hot one? You never saw her? I never saw Dancing with the Stars. I know, but she was like actually... Was she like, the one-legged lady? No. Like, she was one of the professional dancers. Oh. But she was like on... She's pretty famous, man. You've probably seen her in something else. Is she in movies? Yeah. Yeah, probably. She's in... the. Fucking Footloose movie. The Never seen one. that. Okay, I understand that. What I'm saying is she has been in movies. Okay, but all right. she's like she was like 25, I think, when she did that. Oh, so no, it's like she was old. you have a 25 year old on screen, and you're like, okay, that's hot. You know, they're supposed to be playing a character that's like 17 or 18. Oh, okay, does that make sense? Yeah, it's that weird like later the, Hermione it's, Granger. It's the exactly it's the Hermione thing. The Hermione effect. Yes. So anyway, he ends up having an infatuation with the preacher's underage daughter. This dad actually is like, fuck no, get the fuck out of here. And not only kicks him out of like, because he goes up to the pastor and he's like, hey, I think I got, doesn't he try to do that? I got a message from God that I'm supposed to be with your daughter. He closed his eyes. He prayed to God. He opened up his Bible he looks down, he opens his eyes, and the first thing, basically, like, to, I don't know what the verse was, but it's like, she needs to be mine. He shows that to the pastor. The pastor's like, yeah, that's not how it works. I've been running this game for a while, dude. I know how this works. Like, you can't pull this trick on me. Get away from my daughter. That's my textbook, boy. Yep. And he doesn't let up. He continues to pursue her. So eventually, he just gets completely kicked out. Like, he just, he's out. Yeah. Initially, he was getting kicked out of, like... 
when he would try to approach the, like the pastor about this, mm-hmm. he was like, go home for the day. And eventually then he was like, don't fucking come back. You fucking weirdo. Yeah. Stop staring at my underage daughter. Mm-hmm. This is getting weird. I know you've already fucked this up once. I'm not going to let you do it to her. Yeah. So he goes off to California and basically like he, he, for so many of these cult leaders, and I don't know what it is. And Anton LaVey, like I would consider it, maybe not a cult like Satanism probably wasn't a cult. It was just more of a religious movement, but he was a leader. And then Charlie Manson, obviously being musically inclined. Koresh was very musically inclined. Like he was a a decent guitar player. He was a decent singer. And I think he kind of honed those skills more in California back in the hippie times. And he was able to learn kind of a redeeming skill that helps him later on in life Mm -hmm. because they, the Branch Davidians have like a house in California while Mount Carmel is going on down in Waco. Music is like a, it's like a weird appetizer to kind of get people around the table. It's and like the, the ladies that used to sing on the sides of the mountains and then it would draw the ships the in. sirens. Sirens, yeah. Yeah. And so from a, you know, from a distance, it sounds really nice and everything. So basically you're sitting there, the appetizer gathers everyone around. You play some music. That's the main dish. And then dessert, once they're there, maybe you've been passing around something, drinking. You start to talk about stuff. And all of a sudden, a few of those people that are sitting around get up and leave because they hear what you're saying is crazy. A little bit later, maybe one or two other people get up and leave. And you're left with three people there of that group. And all of a sudden, those people like what you're saying. It's- and you're like, you know... I have a place. Why don't we go back and you guys can hear me talk about it a little bit more. That's how you get fucking Charles Manson and that's how you get fucking cult leaders and shit. It kind of like is a social in. Did like, Jim Jones play? Um, He had... I don't know if you can have a name like Jim Jones and not play an instrument. Well, I think that's because there's a the rapper Jim Jones now too. No, I but, don't think I saw. I didn't know that. So. Oh. I, he had some sort of musical abilities. His was more of like a, a socialism kind of deal where he wanted to build like a perfect society. Okay. And we'll do a Jim Jones episode. This uh, Koresh is deep into cult, but he's sort of, I don't know if I would call him cult light. Like he never, they never had a massive impact. Yeah, that's true. Their populations were never gigantic, but he hones his craft, moves back to Texas and he kind of starts to fall in with the Branch Davidians. And the Branch Davidians, like we say, they're they're an offshoot of Davidianism, Seventh-day Adventists. And the Branch Davidians in 73 were taken over by a guy named Benjamin Roden. And he had control of this new sect. He had control of Mount Carmel. They had moved off away from mm-hmm. um, Mount Carmel to form this place called New Mount Carmel. And was which one is the one where everything goes down in Waco? Is that the original Mount Carmel or the new, new Mount one? Carmel? Okay, so New Mount Carmel was this area outside of Waco. Actually, it's in another, technically another city, right? I think so. But yeah, it's just kind of the whole area is but, called Waco. Exactly. Yeah. So it might be like Waco County. I don't know. Anyway, so Mount Carmel was basically like this big, huge plot of land where the uh, what was his name, Roden? Yeah. Roden had set up a basically like a commune, and it was basically this big, just like a big house. But kind of had wings and areas, had a bunch of like underground, like a huge basement in it. Um, some of the buildings were two-story, had a bunch of land around it. Had they a had a pool swimming, in the a backyard. A huge swimming pool in the backyard. And it could apparently, I mean, I don't know how crammed you're putting these people in there, but it can hold quite a few people. I would say it's a more like a compound yeah. than a commune. Yeah. 
because it had like a, a turret, it had a gun tower in it, it had a watchtower, mm-hmm. it had a cultural hall where they would come and meet, and these people were like the real preacher types. Like they would go on and on and on outside sermons three, four, five hours. Mm-hmm. In Texas, that sounds like shit. I don't know what their air conditioning situation I was, was. Say, yeah. They towards the end, um, when Koresh is in power, he's the only one with AC. So as the leader, I guess it's good to be the leader because everybody else is surviving outside of it. But when the rodents have it is when um, Vernon David comes in and it's after Benjamin is sick and the wife, Lois Roden, there was something that uh, David had like kind of an epiphany about and it was something that he really felt strongly about and it was the feminine voice of the Bible. So like you have God, the father, but you also have like a mother spirit Mm -hmm. that kind of speaks in the same way. And she's kind of like, she can be a leader too. Mm -hmm. And he really took a liking to that. I think it was probably because more of his infatuation with women. Yeah. But Lois, after, uh, Benjamin, the husband gets sick. She kind of takes that as like her cue to take over the branch. Yeah. And cause we're talking about a very patriarchal society at this mm-hmm. point. It's you always listen to the males. You well, they take, well they had a son, and the whole thing was is the son. Do you remember what his name George. was? George. George K. George plays a very big role. Yeah. In this. So the son George Roden. Um, she didn't think that he was a good fit, or he was capable of taking over the the church. Oh. So she didn't. That's why she. That's why she actually took over. Is because she didn't believe that he was a worthy oh, successor at that point. Yeah. So that's I, why. Yeah. That is that what you read? Yeah. I just always felt like it was her chance at the power grab because nope. she had been living under this patriarchal society mm-hmm. with her husband for so long. No, because as soon as what ended up happening is, so um, I'm I'm just gonna keep calling him all. It's hard to go between Vernon and David because they're the same guy. So I'm just going to, he takes on the name David at some point when he first starts getting in with the Branch Davidians. Mm, It's later on. Is it later? Okay. We'll just call it David till we get up to the point. Okay. So David ends up moving into Waco and he says he has this vision where he is, he himself is not like the prophet to help survive end of days or whatnot, but he believes that he has a role to play in that. And he goes to Lois, who at this point is now in control. And he's kind of come around and ingratiated himself. I think with this, he's living at Mount Carmel, isn't he? Yeah. And really kind of before he gets his epiphany, which we'll talk about that. Cause it seems kind of odd. He just basically fell for everything that she was saying and came to her. He's like, I want to be your right-hand man. I want to follow you around. I, I want to. I don't know if he necessarily fell for it. I oh, think he, they were in a sexual relationship. I, know, like I understand that. But what I'm saying is that I don't think that it was necessarily not his plan to do that. I think he saw his, his path as that was part of his path to get into control. I don't think it was just like she saw him and was like, that, that, that works out. That's too clean that all he just happens to get hooked up with this branch and the woman in power just happens to groom him and like take it. No, that's part of his plan, man. You think? Yes. Cause uh, the way that I took it and the way that I've always kind of felt about it was 
he believed that they were going to usher in the second coming, so Correct. they needed to create the leader. Correct. And- but he came, he had that vision, and he used that as part of his fuel to seduce her and to get in good with her. Maybe this is where we diverge because everything that I've seen was he wanted to procreate with her to yes. create the son that carries on into the second coming. Correct. But he also saw it as his way to be the leader of this church. Well, uh, there was scriptural doctrine that he had that he believed because I want to say it was it wasn't Abraham, but it was a religious figure who had a child when they were 99. Mm hmm. And they had it, or the male was 99, the woman was like 80. Mm -hmm. So he believed that that was his role in the relationship was he would be, even though the age difference was so off, he believed that Lois could still bear the son that would basically Mm -hmm. be the person to usher in the second coming. I'm just saying it it wasn't like, it might've been a combination. She might've thought she was doing it to him. He might've thought he was doing it to her, but I firmly believe, and we can disagree on that because it's not going to affect what happens. No. But I think that his plan was to also... He saw that she was not letting her son take over, and she probably confided in him throughout their relationship that that was the case, and he saw that he had an opening to get in there and lead and have this this following. Uh, yeah, it absolutely could be that way. Look at what he did when he took over. It wasn't just like he found himself in this and then all of a sudden took all this power. He had a plan for this. He wanted this. Well, his plan to me has always kind of seemed like it, it was sort of separate, and then it like the past do diverged. Like he, do you feel like he fell into the plan? He just fell into the fortunate. Like he, not that he got lucky, but like he had this plan, but he didn't like. What am I trying to say? Part of it happened by chance, or just out of his good luck. I there's some about cult leaders where they get to a certain point and they get to a certain like standing mm-hmm. in a group and once they get to that standing they try to start feeling out like how deep their powers are mm-hmm. and Lois as she's getting older kind of steps away from the pulpit and starts letting David take over mm-hmm. to give the sermons and yeah. everything like that so he's starting to gain that kind of a strong foothold that he's got Lois's go ahead mm-hmm. and then he has this defining moment where he she was 14 years old her name was where is it uh Rachel Jones and the Jones family were followers in the branch Davidians underneath Lois, but they obviously took a liking to David. David said, goes to him and says, I had this vision. Um, your daughter and I need to marry. Once we marry, then we'll be able to usher in the second coming. She'll have my children. I need a, a tribe of, of children mm-hmm. that will be, I think it was 22 that he said, which he ended up blowing past that number. But he basically said, this is what I need. I need your 14-year-old daughter. We need to reproduce. And the family was like, okay. Because in Texas, like the age of consent, you had to be, I think it was like 18 without permission or maybe 16. But at 14, you could still get permission from the parents to marry. I'm going to tell you right now, man, I don't think that these are the type of people being in this situation and agreeing (laughs) to it that the law is going to be the thing that stops them. (laughs) No, I, I appreciate you saying that, that that's what the law was. But I don't think these people recognize it. Well, they actually, her father went down and signed the marriage certificate that he was. Well, at least they could legitimize it. But I don't think that that would have been the preventative. I think they just wouldn't have been married. I think they would have been married with whatever laws of marriage or whatever they had. Well, Um, this was, uh, when this happened, as soon as he did that, 
uh, Lois and George were just like, no, bro, you're, you're done. You're out of here. Well, here's the thing, too, is I don't think we mentioned how old the difference was between Lois and David when he came in. So Lois was 61 and David was 22. So that, to me, I, that... A 39-year I mean, difference yeah. is a hell of a difference. So, you know, after they end up... After this happens with his 14-year-old, George actually forces... David out of Mount Carmel at gunpoint before he did that when he was questioning his power because he was angry that he wasn't getting the shine that David was mm-hmm. he actually challenged him to a duel that to, was that was after no he, he did it the first time oh, and then really? the second time yeah okay so when he does it the first time he's like you think you're God I think I'm God we're gonna raise somebody from the dead whoever can raise somebody from the dead is gonna be the leader <laughs> and David was like no, bro, that's you're fucking crazy. Which for Chris to call somebody crazy, you got to be really out of your mind. Mm-hmm. And so he ignores it and Wait, continues George, on. George challenges him to the duel. Yep. And George is like, I'll raise a person from the dead. Yeah. He, okay. He had some very mental deficiencies. I was going to say that sounded like David, but okay. No. So they end up leaving and they go to a place called, where was it? Um, oh. Texas always blows it's Philadelphia, my mind. Texas, wasn't it? Palestine. Palestine, Texas. Palestine, right. Texas, dude. Where in the world? That's crazy to me. It's it's Bible country, man. Like, there's a lot of places. Like, look at um, Corpus Christi, and there's so many towns in Texas that I'm guessing are named after biblical stuff. Palestine just doesn't seem like a welcoming place in Texas. <laughs> Depends on who founded it, man. True. Another just very shitty place, and he ended up taking some of the followers with him, and the followers that he did take were basically living in like um, tents, plywood and buses, boxes, and yeah, and it's fucking hot. It's a fucking shanty town, is what it is. Mm-hmm. And David would be out there preaching sometimes for ten, twelve hours a day, which the heat sucks. But Texas in the cold at night is mm-hmm. pretty fucking unbearable because well, it's just barren. And then David's got to be out there making the rounds, you know, through his congregation. Because then in 86, he marries another 14-year-old. So he's got two 14-year-olds. Oh, and, and a 12-year-old. And a 12-year-old. So not sure exactly how those conversations went. But I'm guessing that those did not, one of those did not get signed. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is my whole point is I don't think this shit would have stopped him. No. So... What ends up happening after this is Lois dies and George fully takes over at Mount Carmel. So his numbers start to kind of dwindle. Um, People start to migrate towards David because they were somebody that they knew was a direct connection to Lois in that way. And also maybe for the simple fact that to some degree, maybe Lois did recognize that George didn't have, man, you can't be a leader if you're not charismatic. No, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying charismatic there's levels Charisma is a spectrum, man. You can be evil, charismatic Hitler. Mm-hmm. You can be great, charismatic. I don't know anyone to use for that example because Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. Very. Ryan Reynolds. Yep. Rob McElhenney. Absolutely. All those guys. The Rock. Okay, there we go. There's our our spectrum. All those guys is and Hitler. Hitler and yeah. The Rock. Yeah. So George, she probably recognized that some of George's deficiencies were just that lack of charisma and being able to hold a congregation together. That's why some people can't be preachers. You got to be able to there and be able to talk and be convincing and be, you know, eloquent, be personable. too. Yeah, exactly. So that's also, if you still have David that is still within the area 
and you have people leaving Mount Carmel because they don't like what message George is sending, they have a place to a natural place to go. And don't they end up this is where the second duel of resurrecting bodies or something like that comes in. <laughs> so a body gets dug up or something like that from the cemetery out at Mount Carmel. They have their own cemetery. Uh, I don't know if it was their cemetery or if it was just a random cemetery. It was an 84-year-old lady that had been dead for like a, a number of years, like 10, 15 years. But George is the one that does it, right? Yeah, he, he goes and digs her body up, and then he brings her back to Mount Carmel. Car- he brings it into the like cultural hall, mm-hmm. sets it up. Goes and talks to David. He's like, hey, got a dead person. Because he realized at this point that David's stealing his followers. And he's like, if I don't take out Koresh and kind of reestablish myself as the power, the one true leader, I'm going to end up losing everything. There has to be like a grand gesture Mm -hmm. for me to show these people. And David does what smart people do. And he's like, okay. This This is one of the times where you actually see that there's some intelligence behind what he's doing Mm -hmm. where he's like, I'm not going to battle you. I'm just going to call the cops and tell them you were a grave robber and then you're going to get arrested. He desecrated a body and they're going to take you out of play. And then I'm just going to move in. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the police. The police tell him that they need evidence. So David gets a band of his guys and they break into Mount Carmel. Armed. Armed. Uzi, yeah, so David himself had an Uzi on him, mm-hmm. which I don't know when Uzis were a big deal. I, like, whenever I think of an Uzi, I think, like, 80s Russian kind of weapons. Yeah. Or, like... Um, Air Force One sneaking on the plane. Jet, Small. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Yakuza. Yep. Uzis, that kind of thing. Uh, they all had submachine guns when they broke onto the compound. There was a firefight that broke out. George ended up getting hit and wounded, but then he ran away. Uh, they, of course, all get arrested. Um, everybody goes to trial. They all get acquitted somehow. And I'm just, I'm going to assume that the acquittal is just because it's Texas. I don't know. And Texas is just like, yeah, you guys figure it out yourselves. Like we're not going to intervene an okay on this. Corral situation. Like, did you make yourself known that you had weapons? Like we yelled, we have guns. He's like, all right. <laughs> it was just a mutual combat mm-hmm. rule. Yep. And during this, when David gets on the stand. He like fully breaks down and cries. Like he, he becomes a human and all of his followers see these human qualities. His one of his wives at this point, he doesn't become a human. He exhibits a moment of human like behavior. Yes. There you go. He is just such a narcissist that I don't know if he played this up in order to try to gain favor. You think, you think that this was all a plan for him to cry on the stand? I think Given he he's an opportunist man, like he went in to try to use the police he to take out his rival. I don't think you're giving him enough credit for his intelligence, and I'm saying that in a kind of a somber way of saying like it's unfortunate this guy was this intelligent because this is what led to everything. But I think if he saw an opportunity, he took it, and I think that he had this planned. His. Emotional intelligence is higher than his actual intelligence because no. when, w- w- when we get into the raid, he just gets dumber and dumber and dumber. But at this point, when he cries on the stand, one of his wives sees it, and it's like the first time that she's ever seen an adult cry or like a man cry. And so she immediately falls in love with him more. They all end up getting acquitted. George is just mind fucked at this point ends up trying to kill somebody else and gets arrested on an attempted murder charge. Goes to jail. Mount Carmel's taxes start 
building up, building up, building up. I think they might have owed some from before, too. I think there were some back taxes as well. But David saves up enough money. He pays the banknote on the taxes and immediately moves into Mount Carmel. Yep. And George ends up... That's why I'm saying he planned. Like, that... For someone to have all of this just fall into place like this, I'm not saying he planned to have George attempt to murder someone else, but the way that he set this up, there was definitely some planning behind it. It was George getting arrested again was kind of the happy accident. It was kind of like he was going to long play it, and then George might have sped up the mm-hmm. the process. That's exactly a little what bit. it was. He knew that George wouldn't be able to like because if anything, even if George didn't go to jail, he wasn't being able to pay taxes probably. And the more dwindling numbers, was, it was just a time exactly. Game. Yep, he just had to wait him out. So. George ends up just like David follows him around for the rest of his life, basically mm-hmm. in his mind. And he ends up killing his roommate and goes to prison. And when they send before they send him to prison, obviously he goes to trial. They find him mentally unfit. He spends the rest of his night in a nut house or the rest of his life in a nut house. Thankfully for him, he outlives David. So maybe there's a win there for him. I, I hope that maybe that was like he was living in a mental institution, but at least he maybe outlived David. I don't David. think that he would consider that a win. Okay, before we go any further, I do have to go to the bathroom. Okay. All right. All right. While we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod. And our Twitter is historically high. That's historically HI. All right. And back to our show. All right. So getting back at it. So this is the point. Once he takes over Mount Carmel, this is when he actually changes his name to David Koresh. Mm-hmm. He. Excuse me. Just a sec. Adam had to get a little something on his tummy. Turns out recording early and drinking early are two tough things. It makes luckily, a good day. Yeah, luckily the marijuana is helping even things out. But he changes his name to David Koresh. Like we talked about earlier, he took the name David from King David. He takes Koresh from, I want to say it was a... So Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, a Persian king who is named the Messiah for freeing the Jews during the Babylonian captivity. And then the first name David, of course, symbolizes the lineage directly to the biblical King David. So very strategic. Fairly self-important name. how he chose his name. He gives himself a lot of credit by naming himself David Koresh. Mm -hmm. Uh, In that process, he also comes up with something that he calls the New Light Revelation. Well, here's the thing, too. So for those that don't know, so King David, the legend is that that's who the new messiah would descend from is in that line of king david so he was basically putting himself in line to say hey it could be me if it's not me i need to make a lot of people in my line to make sure that one of these can you imagine if that's your that's your justification for trying to like talk to these families and be like well i i gotta have sex with your your underage daughter because you know if the messiah isn't me then the Messiah could be the child that I, I make with your daughter. Like, you could be the the family of the Messiah. Like, I, what, yeah. what do you... I'm trying to put my set, my mind, or myself into that mindset of, like, where, where are you as a parent and as an adult that you hear, hear this and it somehow makes sense? I don't have that part of me, I guess. No, I, and I don't think it's... 
I, I've said this multiple times about other things, but like Tom Brady, I'll never be devoted to anything and love anything as much as Tom Brady loves football. Yeah. And I've made my peace with that. I'll never be as deeply ingrained in something and believe in something to just go ahead and toss away all my values as these people were. And I'm sure when you're dealing with a situation where you're talking about like the second coming and end times and revelation and all that good stuff, that it scares you enough to know that you're willing to hedge your bets. It's kind of like um, lost, like sunk cost, basically. Okay. It's like a sunk cost analysis. You've put so many eggs into your into this basket mm-hmm. that you almost have to see it through because coming out of this situation, you're there's gonna be nothing s- for you also on the outside. You're going to be so much worse off trying to come out of it because you've been gone for so long that you almost have to try to see it through and be like, "This sounds crazy to me, but I've already come this far. I might as well finish." And you're so immersed in it all the time. Like mass immersion has got to be something that cults, and it is something that cults use you know, to a T is basically you just don't really give the people that are following you a break to think about anything else. Everything is centered around what's good for the commune or what's good for the religion or what's good for, you know, the David himself, David himself. And so by keeping people focused on this, you don't allow outside distraction in to let them know, Hey, there's other options or you don't really give them an opportunity to look for answers or questions, I guess, to the answers you're giving them. They just have to take what you're saying as gospel. And he figured it out. Ted's in the way there. He figured it out that after he comes up with this New Light Revelation. So the New Light Revelation was something that I'm sure he had concocted way before this. And he calls everybody over. Uh, They're having basically like a sermon. During the sermon, he plays up the act. He kind of stops for a second. He looks up at God. Everybody's like, oh, what's he doing? And he proclaims that God just spoke to him and told him that in order to grow uh, the tribe, basically, they needed or he needed to annul every single marriage and separate every single husband and wife from each other and separate the children. And that all of his male members were no longer allowed to have sex because that was like a sin of the flesh. Mm -hmm. But he was allowed to have sex with any of their former wives in well, order to procreate, to grow the population because his lineage was the lineage that needed to continue on. Yeah, of course he's the, he's from the line of David. <laughs> he's going to birth the Messiah. Like step aside, you cuck. I got to plow your wife to try to make our next Lord and savior. You want to continue to make halflings or you want the real deal? And in doing that, he also separated their living quarters. The only time that they were allowed to ever be around each other was during Bible study. So keeping those two separate, they have such a tougher time being able to talk in private about things like that you would talk with your mate about. Because if you're talking to your mate like at night before bed about something and you can kind of bounce ideas off of each other, the separation of males and females stops that. So if you do have any doubt in your mind or if you have any questions about like this new light revelation, anything like that, you don't have your partner to bounce that off of to try to be like, hey, does this shit sound crazy to you? Because mm-hmm. it kind of sounds That's crazy exactly to me. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's separation of any independent thought or any type of situation that you can bounce ideas off that might be questionable ideas or you know, ideas questioning the teachings. That's what I'm saying. He's not, he's not a stupid person. Despite, I, despite, you know, the dyslexia 
I think that's why he was, you know, it wasn't that he was put in these special classes as a kid. It's because back then they didn't understand what dyslexia really was. They weren't equipped to, to handle and just understand, oh, you just mix your letters up sometimes. That doesn't, we talked about this before. Well, I can't remember which episode it was in, but you were talking about how you don't even, these days you don't even really hear too much about dyslexia outside of maybe just talking about a kid or something. Because if you have it as an adult, you've, your mind has learned to compensate for you to recognize words. It's like those people, have you seen those people, I think I do this to a degree, where when you're reading, you can read faster because you look at the first two or three letters of the word and you can tell based on what the previous words were, what that word is. People that have learned like how to skim or kind of yeah, predict. Kind of. Exactly. It's like predictive. It's not predictive text because that's when you type out something. But basically, it's a, it's a reading version of predictive text. And so you can gather information like that. I think he just, he's been in this life so much and he knows at this point psychologically what he's able to get away with that there's no one been, you know, up to this point, there's no one really that's questioned him or challenged him aside from George. And even when he left, he wasn't leaving on his own. He, he brought followers with him, which in his mind was just a way of saying, oh, I am right. These people are coming with me. I didn't lose. I just haven't gained everybody yet. Exactly. I, I haven't sold everybody on what I'm selling. And so now that he basically, people don't have an option now. It's just him. Yeah, George is out of the picture. Lois died a while ago. These are just his people. Those are who he needs to lead. And they, don't, yeah, they don't have anywhere else to go. No. I think he did hedge his bets a lot on that was if you can push him over. When we talk about the siege I'll kind of get into where I think that maybe he, like his hubris was outweighed his intelligence. But so he goes into this whole new light doctrine. He already has eight wives, eight fucking wives. Mm -hmm. And not many of them are older than 18. Like it's a very young, young man's game, young, young woman's game that he's playing. And he, once they kind of have this new light doctrine, he just starts fucking like crazy. He is all over these women. He's taking different wives or not wives, but he's basically taking different mates and he's procreating like crazy. Like his children are the amount of them. I think like had this whole siege thing not happened, he would kind of have a larger line than would be okay with. And I don't know how I would take being like the son of David Koresh at this point in my life. If I knew that that's what my dad did, I don't know. Because you don't want to fall into the demonizing part of it because he's your dad and you never really knew him. But at the same time, there's still sex out there who believe that he was the true Messiah, that he stood up, excuse me, to the government. Like, he that he was still, he's still spoken about favorably in different circles that aren't good circles. You, you have to, like, it would take a lot of... Yeah, I, I don't know if I can imagine someone that's that mentally well-adjusted that that isn't something that's, like, strongly affected their life. Uh, you're always going to be in therapy. For well, here's the question, though, too, and this is going to jump forward a little bit, but we're going to cover the information anyway, is how many of his actual kids made it out? I don't, <coughs> I don't know how many of them made it out. I think some of them did because he had a... There were, like I said, there were different areas that they would have like communes. Like they had a house in California that was the parents' house of a wife that he had had that they had walked away from basically like the cult. Okay. 
And I know that she had had kids. I don't know if she escaped with the kids or if they stayed on the compound with David. But I think there were people that got out. So there's still probably a few of his kids, but a lot of them died in the siege. So as they're on the compound now, and as they're, they obviously need money. They need a way of funding this whole fun farm that they got going on. Uh, he has people that are out working in the public and then bringing their wages back to him. One of the big things that they get into, and I'm sure it's a huge industry in Texas, was they created something called the mag bag. Mm-hmm. And it was basically an arms dealer where they would be getting guns in and they would be going to these private seller shows. And they well, would they're be not s- private. It's like when you do a... It- <laughs> I don't even know how to compare. You know, sometimes around here we do like the RV show down at the it's like expo. A, it's like a gun convention. That's all it is. But they have these all the time. And Texas is so big and these are going on all the time. So much that it was basically, they they didn't have a brick and mortar place, but they would go around to these gun shows and sell. They would. And that's why it's like a, because they're selling these guns privately. They don't have like a store open. That's what I mean. They're, yeah. But that's why it's private mm-hmm. is it's like they're, they're just selling out of their license at these shows. They don't yes. have like a full store mm-hmm. store that you can go yeah, get. Correct. Yeah. But they get real privy to being able to alter guns and the family that got away that lived in California, they were still so under his tutelage kind of that they had yeah they had a conversion kit for a to make a gun an automatic Mm -hmm. and it was like a machine gun it was like to make an automatic machine gun yeah after they kicked all the davidians out they actually held that for him to come pick up because they thought that he would want it yeah so that kind of leads in and that's leading into basically the the waco siege and kind of the lead up of what brought it on so because they have a hand and they're getting some of their money from basically arms sales, but at this point it's kind of legal arms sales, there's kind of suspected that they might be stockpiling arms at this point. And I'm not sure who this really comes under, like who first kind of brings this to the attention. I don't know if there was a government agency at this point that was kind of like had an eye on potentially like extremists. Well, we just talked about this previously. Maybe there was still a group that was looking at these smaller, like what they could consider extremist groups Mm -hmm. or cults or something like that at this point. But it drew the attention of the, um, I don't know if local law enforcement was ever really aware of it, but they started bringing in like um, grenade casings through like FedEx in the mail. You know how they they first got picked up on the radar. So essentially... A box broke open, and a FedEx driver, the box that broke open that was being delivered up to Mount Carmel, was full of grenade casings. It was a UPS guy. It had semi-automatic rifles in it and had grenade casings. It was. I don't know if it was the actual rifles themselves, but what I know it was is the whole reason that it drew so much attention once the ATF, which is the alcohol, 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 tobacco, and firearms, um, they're the essentially the legal, what would you consider them? The enforcement agency for it. The government arms of regulating alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. firearms. So what ended up, they kind of found through their research and also through like testimony of people that lived around the areas, they had some people talking about hearing automatic weapons fire from the Davidian complex. 
um, somebody that mentioned it was also a like former soldier. And he's like, I was in Vietnam. I know what automatic fire sounds like. Cause they also had firing ranges. They had built firing ranges out at the complex. Yeah. So what they were doing is they were taking these weapons that were semi-automatic rifles. And I guess with like, uh, AR 15s, if you take an AR 15 rifle, but then you swap out with an M 16 receiver, the M 16 receiver would be what like, the military used it's the weapon that you always see in vietnam movies it's the machine gun except it's like the all black classic one it's the one that like a lot of people use as logo you know when they put the stickers up and everything mm-hmm. it's the m16 so if you would take the receiver and the firing mechanism off that and put it onto an ar-15 it would become fully automatic they had a way of doing this with rifles they could also do this i think with pistols a couple of the pistols that they had at the complex so this actually gets the that gets the attention of the atf and they start kind of looking into him. They even send in like someone undercover. They had also had a lot of just from like pending court cases about people that had left in like kidnapping and child abuse, different people that have escaped from the Davidians that try to bring charges against them. There were charges of child neglect. There were charges of child abuse, which obviously we know is going on because he's fucking underage girls. Well, and that's in, it's not even the weapons thing. I mean, that was part of the reason that they were allowed the attorney general allowed them to perform the siege or the raid. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even the weapons. It was because they were there were still children in there, and there had already been so much proof of like child child abuse and child neglect and everything that that was kind of the catalyst or what they used as the reasoning. To get, because they had to get presidential approval for this. The attorney general actually went to was who was f- president this time? Clinton. Clinton. So Janet Reno had to go to Clinton, and he initially declined the raid and said this needs to be done as a negotiation and everything. She then had to go back once the raid was already under, or no, before the raid happened, a second time and was like, hey, at this point, we're worried about the children, the kids, and he's like, do what you think is best. I. That was definitely a major driver. Like you were talking about with the surveillance, the ATF actually moved agents in next door to Waco or moved next door to Mount Carmel in like Waco. the street or something? Yeah, or, I, I don't know how big the compound was, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming it was probably fairly sizable. From from the pictures, it looks like there's a lot of space yeah. around. I'm not sure how near to the main road or the next house is, but this is like rural Texas. This is not, you know. And if neighborhood. your neighbor's moving in of a certain style of life like i don't think it was like a male and a female agent i think it was just a couple male agents Mm -hmm. so it sort of gives your position away and these agents that had moved in next door started actually going over and attending like bible study Mm -hmm. and koresh said that he knew that they were this is where i get into like koresh's hubris was outweighed his intelligence because he said that he knew that they were atf agents and he knew that they were there spying on them but he believed so much in his words and what he was saying and what he was preaching that he actually believed that even though they were ATF agents, that he could get a hold of them and he could sink his claws into them and that he could make them believe what he believed mm-hmm. to try to flip an ATF agent, which a lot of people in the public, you have the ability and kind of the strength of them not knowing what you do. But as soon as you start bringing people into Bible study that have prior knowledge of the child abuse and the weapons and the guns, you're not going to buy into his bullshit. No, well he he too. believed himself. He believed in himself that much that he could flip an actual ATF agent. Well, here's the thing too: is he did talk to a few agents, but then they actually sent in this undercover agent, Robert Rodriguez, who Koresh learned his identity, and he chose not to reveal that fact or anything until the actual day of the raid. 
So kind of like you're saying this hubris, I don't know if he believed that he could turn this guy into someone who was going to be, you know, double agent and kind of be on his side, or if he was just so confident that he could hide everything from this guy that eventually they wouldn't see anything. And then they would just say, there's nothing to, you know, there's nothing going on here. I think you lean towards kind of the first because the beginning bungle of this whole thing, I, in looking back on it, I don't really remember having this thought, but when they talk about how the bot or the raid was botched, I kind of disagreed until it really came back to this thought. But basically before this started, um, a couple days before there were FBI agents cause the FBI wanted to be involved, but there were more ATF agents that had flooded into mm-hmm. the rural area of Texas. So as those hotels fill up, the local, um, newspapers and media are starting to figure out that there's something big going on. They and end I mean, up getting, they know that the like local media knows that like the Davidians are out here already. Yeah. But I'm no, sure they're kind of weird. Know that that could mm-hmm. be what's going on. So local media gets a hold of it. And on the day of the raid, um, a reporter gets lost. And as the reporter gets lost, they do the logical thing. They ask the postman where they're going. Postman turns out to be David Koresh's brother-in-law. So David Koresh's brother-in-law is the mailman, calls David Koresh. like, hey, there was a reporter out here looking for you guys saying that there was going to be a raid today. Mm-hmm. Koresh finds out about it. He lets everybody else know. He actually told Rodriguez that he knew what was going on and he knew what he was, Mm -hmm. and he let him leave under his own volition. Yeah, That, to me, makes me think that he really thought, like, okay, this is what needs to happen. If you're not going to believe in me, that's fine. You can go fight your side of the war because ultimately he believed that they were going to have to go back and fight, I think, in Israel for their freedoms when the rapture came. But then he started to realize during, I think it was the Persian Gulf War that was happening right around there, that their fight was actually going to take place at home in Waco against the government instead of against the mm. New World Order. Okay. Okay, so, so you don't think that <clears throat> you don't think that his process was that he was going to just get out of this. I you thought he he realized that it was either he was going to come out victorious in this or everyone was going to die. That this was going to be the persecution that then led into the second coming. Okay. I, I really think just through everything that he said to the ATF and the way that he tried to preach, he knew that this was coming. He knew... What are you looking for? No, my pen. Uh, Keep going. Uh, he knew kind of that this was going to have to happen. And he was preaching to his people on Mount Carmel about it because they were training children with firearms. They were training the men with firearms. They knew that there was going to be an armed conflict. Oh, it gr- it's guerrilla warfare. He, yeah, he basically knew coming from all of the different raids or not different raids that had been done, but the investigations, he knew when the ATF was sending people in that it was eventually going to have to end this way. Well, it's, <clears throat> I think it's a combination of him knowing that his Time is probably his days are probably numbered a little bit, but also um, a false sense of, I don't know, grandeur or like his place. Uh, what do you call that? Not, he knew I guess he was going to have to be a martyr. A god complex. 
He was going to have to be a martyr for his cause, and he was going to have to, even if he gets killed, everybody that's a branch of video on the outside, he thinks he's going to be like, okay, well, he was preaching this, and then mm-hmm. it came to fruition. He has to be the guy that we should be listening to. Well, and here's the thing, too. Can you imagine being Rodriguez, and you know that he knows, and he's like, you can leave? Can you imagine what that feeling would be like, like walking out and like walking to your car just waiting to get shot in the back? Knowing yeah. that he basically knows it's go time and he's got nothing to lose. You've been in there. You know kind of what the how crazy these people are for him. You've seen the devotion, and so you're thinking like first of all, you're probably thinking it's a trick, like he's just letting me walk away. No, he's gonna shoot me in the back. Shoot me. And just as you get close to your car, you're like, it's it's gonna happen right as I get to my car and then trying to get your keys and trying to fuck, man. He knows that I know what's going on here, and I'm of no of no consequence to him. He can kill me and it's not going to cause him any extra issue. Like mm-hmm. that's a, it had to be in the most scary thing coming out of there. And instead of the ATF, uh, he goes back obviously to their place, to their house, whatever it was that they were living in tells the ATF, Hey, David knows what's going mm-hmm. on. They know that the raid is coming today and they had a no knock warrant. So they didn't have to go up to the door and knock. They were going to break their way in. ATF's like, fuck it. We're still going to run the plan today. This was our idea. Like, instead of gathering yourself, because if you pull off that day, you do have the element of surprise again. Like, it, it may not be no. Monday. It may not be Tuesday. Mm. It could be Wednesday. Like, no. Yes and no. Here's the thing is if you're giving them, yeah, you're, they know that you're on the way and they can prepare between the time that they know now. But, even if they call it off, they know that your plan is to raid. So at that point, regardless of how long you wait, I mean, unless you're willing to wait a year, maybe more, they're going to be on high alert and they're also going to have the opportunity to bring in additional resources and bring in additional, like, either if they need weapons, they can do more training, they can fortify more. You know, I, I think that at this point, they, one, I think they underestimated people's devotion to him. And I think they probably also underestimated the level of resistance that they were going to be able to put out. It could be. That's, I guess they really would just be on high alert after that. My thinking would have been, had they held off for like a month, you would have gotten a month into maybe making people question like, Hey, you said that it was go time. They haven't shown up here in a month. Like maybe their belief would be waning because he was wrong about the raid that day Mm -hmm. to where they would be caught more off guard, but he would have had the ability to call in reinforcements. They would have still known they would have sent their people back out into the city to be able to see like, Hey, these people are still here. It still could be happening Mm -hmm. at any time. I don't even know if that would have occurred. I don't know if he would have let people leave because if they are going to raid, I don't know what the reason being that they wouldn't maybe start picking people up if they're going to raid anyway. I, yeah, I just think at that point they were, they felt they had the resources committed to it and that if they didn't do it, that any amount of surprise was going to be completely lost. Their resources, the way that they planned this whole thing just seems like it was, excuse me, like they had a lot of time to plan it, but when it came right down to it, like they didn't have medical at the ready to think that they were ever going to need them in case there was a firefight that happened. Mm -hmm. So you had a staging area which had like fire trucks and that type of thing, but you didn't have medical on standby in case one of your agents gets shot to be able to take care of it. No, here's here's some of kind of the preparation that they had. 
leading up to the raid so you kind of understand what the the government's position on or what their i guess their strength was in this scenario so the search warrant it commanded the search to occur on or before february 28th and 93 in the daytime between 6 a.m and 10 p.m which that's kind of funny to me that it states that because it's like it reminds me of like when you get cable repair Mm. or something they're like we'll be there between the hours of eight and five you have a window yeah this window was fucking 6 a.m to 10 p.m um, the ATF also made the claim that Koresh was possibly operating a meth lab, which is kind of ties back to something that we didn't mention previous. When he took over Mount Carmel after George left, they found a meth lab in Mount Carmel, and he had the whoever was doing the transfer of you know the property. After they found that, he had the police come in and clean that out. But the reason why they say I think the ATF made that claim. I don't know if they, what information they had on it, but it was to establish a drug nexus and obtain military assets under the war on drugs policy. So because essentially there was a meth lab, they were able to, I think that's how they got a hold of some of the like armored vehicles. Huh? Cause they had like Bradley fighting vehicles. At some point they had Abrams tanks. Yeah, that's, so they had to have known bringing a tank in that they were going to have that they were going to meet some sort of resistance. But I don't know if they brought that. Keep in mind, this is a siege that lasted fifty-one days, almost True. two months, and dependent on how it went. Because of course, there were times during this standoff that no action was occurring during certain days. Most days. Most days, exactly. There were only a few days because it wasn't like, hey, we're just going to knock down a wall with this tank and then back off and wait for a week. It was activity going on. If they were taking action, it was to be immediate action. And that's uh, that same day that they launched the raid, it was they were just met immediately with fire. Yeah, so it was March 1st, 93, had the codename Showtime. Um, the ATF later claimed that the raid was moved up a day to the 28th, essentially, um, in response to the Waco Tribune Herald's The Sinful Messiah series article, which is another thing. So apparently, the Waco Tribune had this um, story about David Koresh that they had been like sitting on for a while under pressure from the government. And they were like, don't put this out there because they were afraid that it was, it would draw attention. Even if it was like, so I think their fear was, even though this was the Waco Tribune, as soon as the media got a hold of this, that there was a siege, then people would be just like grabbing for articles to try to get information about this. The Waco Tribune, uh, Tribune, Tribune would be like, Hey, we have this huge article that we just wrote and it would give the nation a lot more visibility into what, the Branch Davidians were. So I don't know if they were worried it would cause like sympathy or blowback or something, but what he, ended up happening is the it was released on that date. And I'm sure he wasn't too bummed, or Koresh wasn't too bummed about it. Oh, no. Koresh, I mean, I'm sure he had other things to think about at this point. Mm-hmm. He didn't have time to kind of sit sit and bask on it or in it. He, he wanted the national attention. And after that first day of the raid, they... <laughs> I read somewhere that like actual gunfights and firefights with like the ATF and the FBI and all that stuff, they last around like two minutes. This shit lasted for two hours. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that the ATF had to pull back. And uh, one of the things that I really think that like the Branch Davidians, knowing that they were stockpiling shit, this was like a big advantage. Because the ATF actually started running out of ammunition to where they had to pull back while the Davidians were still firing at the same rate. 
So the ATF wasn't even prepared enough to be able to go in to fight these people that were stockpiling mm-hmm. ammunition. Like that, that to me is crazy that they were that prepared. Well, check this out. So while not standard procedure, the ATF agents had their blood type written on their arms or neck after leaving the staging area before the raid because it was recommended by the military to facilitate speedy, eh, speedy blood transfusions in the case of injury. So they fucking knew because also calling in the military, they, they knew the severity of this. They knew what they were going up against. Um, so it's daylight. They go to, um, actually like serve the warrant or go to like breach and serve the warrant. And basically I want to say, let's see how many people ended up dying the first day. It's there were six Davidians that died the first day. There were four ATF agents and there were 16 ATF agents wounded. That's a lot. And one of them, the branch Davidian uh, people that died during the initial was five. There was a lady that was coming home from work that day that didn't know. Well, during this raid, wasn't this the raid? The very first, that's where Koresh got shot, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I would think it's, he never comes out and actually admits that he gets wounded until later on. He took one in the hip and it was like in the back and it ended up going to his hip, but it was a fairly decent shot. And then there was one in the wrist that he took too, I think. Mm -hmm. They refused medical attention after they kind of brokered the ceasefire during the actual raid. Koresh and a couple other people had called into the local police department and the local police department didn't have a straight line to the ATF where this Mm -hmm. was going on. So as Koresh was trying to talk to the local sheriff's department, they're like, whoa, they didn't give us enough warning to have a connection here. We're trying to get a hold of them to try to broker this ceasefire. So I'll just kind of do a breakdown of it. The initial raid kind of what popped it off. So just because everyone's listening to this, I don't know if anyone can pull up on their phone a picture of the um, Mount Carmel compound. So basically it's like, it looks like a big house. It's got almost like a wall around it. It looks like in kind of a courtyard and surrounds the pool. Part of it is two story. So, and then most of it, I think is just one story or a little bit taller buildings. They had an outpost where you had a lookout in it. Yeah. And it's almost U-shaped. So it all connects. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is the ATF brings in helicopters. They have a team that goes out to the kennels during this raid to shoot the dogs. Kind of fucked up. Yeah, I don't know. So, and then they have like another team that's going to breach the door. Um, There's been a lot of like discrepancies about who actually fired first. A lot of people say it was the Davidians fired first. A lot of people say that it was, you know, there's a lot of accounts. What I'm saying is that the, of course, the official line is that they fired first and then the ATF returned fire. Always. There's been some studies of like the actual structure and the doors that were fired upon first and the way that the door was actually like the shots, the splinter, the wood, their exit wounds going to the interior. And then at one point during the investigation, that door disappears after like after everything ends that door was able to be be taken so i don't know exactly like what the deal with that is but this raid isn't just like bashing doors they have guys that are like on the roof that are trying to go down through windows into areas trying to capture koresh and they had helicopters that they were using like as aerial distractions all of those took incoming fire yeah it was during the first shots koresh was wounded shot in the hand and the stomach um 
the Branch Davidian, his name was um, Wayne Martin, like you said, he called emergency services, pleading for, uh, pleading for them to stop shooting, asked for a ceasefire. Um, he was saying, that's them shooting, that's not us, during the recordings that they were able to gather. Which, of course, doesn't mm-hmm. hold up. The first casualty, or ATF casualty, was an agent who made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Uh, they took cover, they were firing at the helicopters, Um there were guys that were trying to come down either through skylights or through windows from the roof, like rappel down or the climbing the roof with ladders. I mean, it sounds like it was a full, like think of a domestic, what am I trying to say here? Like, um, like a SWAT team doing a raid and everything like that, just swarming the compound. And the fact that they were repelled and had to back off just due to the, like you were saying, they started running about running out of ammunition. Like they completely underestimated the situation. Oh, yeah. I, trying to serve a warrant that's a no-knock warrant like this and trying to limit casualties, I don't know if maybe they just didn't expect this kind of a, a fight to happen. But these people, to remind everybody, they've been stockpiling for years. And after the fire And practicing. Yeah, and practicing. Yeah, exactly. After the fire that we'll get to, they said that they recovered 300 semi-automatic rifles. Did you see how many rounds of ammunition? Uh-uh. So they called them, I can't remember what they call it. It's not expended ammunition because that's after you use it. It's ammunition that, like the fire, it makes it detonate, mm-hmm. which can you imagine? I'm going to tell you the number, and then you can imagine all of this, like, ammo popping off. 1.9 million rounds. Million? Yes. How did everybody not get, I guess the propulsion's a little bit different, but how did everybody outside just not get shredded by 1.9 million bullets? When Popping the off at the same time. Well, you got to imagine no one even approached when there's a fire like that, especially in this kind of scenario, fire departments aren't trying to put it out. The whole thing's burning because it's unexpected. You're not expecting the way that this happens. You, it's not like a fire starts and like get the fire rescue up here. Mm-hmm. The fire happens and they're trying to find out if people are coming out. They're still worrying about the gunfire. The fire happens so quickly in the scenario that they don't even approach the area until the fire has died down, which means that all the fi- ammo has already been expounded. And it's also, yes. remember, it's up on like a little bit of a rise. And so all the ATF agents are kind of downhill. So the firing can't fire at that trajectory. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'd be surprised if, can you imagine like being in the distance though, of that stuff popping off and oh, firing yeah. off into the distance and everything? Like it's lucky it was so secluded. Like people could have been hit by that shit. And that's, that's a little bit towards the end of it. So over this standoff, after they pull back, there's a line of communication between David with the ATF. Of course, the FBI sweeps in seeing how badly bungled the raid was FBI takes over and for 51 days they're going back and forth communicating with Koresh Koresh says I want uh, I believe it was I want you to get my message out nationally a Christian TV channel picked it up and they were allowed to film something to put out to the masses and overnight this becomes like an instant sensation as soon as the media gets a hold of it and as soon as everybody shows up it's being broadcast around the world. He mm-hmm. Within a day, it was like the biggest news on TV. It was yeah. shown on all the news stations at night. He really got the press and the pub that I think that he wanted. And he would go back during these times when they were talking and trying to negotiate. He would just immediately start breaking into what they just call Bible babble. Because he would be talking about trying to justify and make justifications <sighs> for what they were doing, what their mission was, and why they needed to come out of this okay. Which, 
I think he knew that he was going to die at that point. Like he wasn't going to make this out alive. So the more he could get his message out, I truly think that he believed in that more than he believed in what he was doing. And there's certain things that psychologically, um, some of the visions that you can have and some of these delusions of grandeur can be caused by like seizures basically that happen, I think in your temporal lobe where you would be able to have these visions. And most of the time they're religious. Sometimes there are other things. Most of the time they're religious. I think that he had maybe not being a doctor, obviously I can't say, and they didn't know, but he had maybe had enough of these seizures to where he really did believe like if he died, he would die and go to heaven. He wasn't, he wasn't just in this for strictly like personal gain. He was into it because he knew that he I think it was a, I think it was a healthy mix of both. Yeah, I think it was. Um, so, well, I mean, after the ATF kind of botched this, that's when the FBI actually took over and took command, using, of course, the deaths of federal agents as justification for it. And the FBI hostage rescue team, the HRT, that they brought in was actually headed by the same guy, Richard Rogers, who'd previously um, been the head of the Ruby Ridge incident. He's- so he was criticized for that, but apparently not too much. I don't know what criticism it's probably like, Hey, don't do that again. And then he gets another job. So he's, he's down here doing this. So at first the Davidians actually had telephone contact with like local news media. And during the initial part of the, you know, the siege, Koresh gave phone interviews and then the FBI cut off his communication to the outside world. So for the next 51 days communication, all of that went through telephone to a group of 25 FBI negotiators. That seems like a lot just for one. I know, but check this out. So the final Justice Department report that they did on this found that the negotiators criticized all of the tactical commanders, like the guys that put the FBI and everything like that, for undercutting the negotiations. So I don't know if they were sabotaging it. I don't know if they were just, you know, <sighs> they had it in their minds that they needed to take action. I'm guessing after that first raid and seeing, like, the loss of life on their side, I don't think negotiation was probably their number one priority Mm-mm. at that point. They got showed up, they got taken out and pushed back by a mob of people. Like it wasn't, these people are trained tactical fighters and they were stopped by a group of Wahoos in a compound. Well, I mean, in, in the first few days, they, the FBI thought they were making real headway with him because they actually negotiated an agreement that all of them would peacefully leave. All they would have to return for a message is for a message from David Koresh being broadcast on national radio. So they were like, cool, you'll release everybody. We'll get this broadcast on national radio. They actually did that. And then after that, Koresh then told the negotiators that God had told them to remain in the building and wait. And that was his move. Every single time they would get close to a deal, there would always be something to get pushed back. Well, but then he would give them like little things because he, you know, had he just completely bailed on their agreement they wouldn't be willing to offer him anything, you know, in the future. So despite him being like, eh, they told me to wait in the building, um, the negotiators managed to facilitate 19 kids being released, ranging in age from five months to 12 years old without their parents. And even after that, 98 people were still in the building. They, there were people that were so devoted to the cause to where it didn't matter. They knew that they wanted to see the end game here. It's kind of that sunk, sunk cost analysis that we were talking about. They knew that they were in it this far David had been preaching about something like this happening for years. So they knew, just based on what they knew, they knew that David was speaking the truth now. 
but he really had the insider information, being smart enough to know that they were going to come after him eventually. So it's kind of like you throw enough shit to the wall with something sticks, you're going to get people that are beholden to you. And the people that they had pulled out, and a lot of people went to jail, but even to this day, there's still people that believe that what happened was what Koresh was saying. Like, that he's still the prophet. They still have... He's the martyr. Yeah, he's the martyr he, he was a martyr. He, yeah. And this whole raid, I kind of... It just plays back and forth, because they did some pretty brutal shit to these people. They did, like, multiple hours straight noise over big microphones of dying rabbits. Yeah, they used a whole bunch of things that they had probably determined were good psychological warfare through, like, Vietnam and everything. Mm-hmm. It was... I want to say... It was rabbits like being killed. There were some other sounds that they used that were proven like psychological like deterrence and everything. They were basically just trying to keep them awake at night and basically what what would you call that? Just drive them into sleep deprivation, start getting them to turn on David. Mm-hmm. And that's where I play back and forth is like I hear that and I think that's cruel and unusual. Here's the, the thing, same though, time, man. it's a compound where some guy is fucking children. That's that's what I'm saying. Is like I don't think at any point – I don't know if their order of doing things was necessarily the right order. Um, but at the point when they got those 19 kids out, of course, they start interviewing all of the kids, like getting with social workers. And you know they'd been physically and sexually abused long before the standoff even occurred. Their whole and, lives. Exactly. And so that was the finally the justification that basically offered the FBI and they offered to Clinton and Reno – and they were like, this is why we need to go ahead and use tear gas and just gas these people out of here so we can get – there's still children in there. We got to get everyone out right now. And tear, ga- uh, tear gas officially up to this point – I'm pretty sure they probably had some studies on this they weren't talking about. They had never tested tear gas on children, so they didn't know the effects that would be the, – the tear gas would have on kids. Well, and check this out, too. So during the siege, FBI sent in a video camera to him. Mm -hmm. And in the videotape made by David's followers, um, Koresh introduced his children and his wives to the FBI negotiators, including several minors who claimed to have had babies fathered by Koresh. Um, They said he had fathered perhaps 14 of the children who stayed with him in the compound. And they... They found out they were able to do DNA tests on the kids afterwards. We'll get to kind of that dark part right at the end. But they, yeah, they. Well, the tape was never even released or anything like that because the negotiators had determined that it would cause or it would create um, sympathy Mm -hmm. for crushing them. And that's what he was going for, I think, the whole time was the sympathy. Putting out the sermons, different things like that. You're not going to get the masses, obviously, because they probably think that you're a kook. But it does garner sympathy with anybody that's willing to listen to basically a religious prisoner, which he tried to portray himself as. Mm -hmm. He had a, I guess Passover is still like a very important holiday to Adventists and to Davidians. So, excuse me, coming around then, he said that after Passover, he would end up leaving. He would surrender. They would all come out. Passover comes and goes. Passover is not the end point. He still says that Jesus has more, more time for him. More I, shit I miss, do. I misread the signs. Yeah. And this was where it goes all the way back to Millerism. Like the, the great disappointment, like he was trying to choose these dates to tell these people he's buying time, man. Yeah. And they had enough provisions on site. They said that the inside of the compound and all the people that were still alive could live up to another year. 
So this was a waiting game where they had to start figuring out, like, if these people can live here for a year, we obviously can't let this go on any longer. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, eventually what they did is they had like nine of these Bradley, they call them Bradley fighting vehicles. Basically, they're armored transports, but they have like a gun on top, like a big 50 cal or something like a cannon. And they had nine of these things out there and they were basically using them to like run over and clear the area, like mow down any fences, mow down any of the cars that they had out there. And they were just Mm -hmm. driving them around the, the complex just taking out any obstacles for maybe like the next, the next raid. And these things even had on them, they had um, like the tear gas uh, launchers. They were called CEVs, combat something vehicles. Yeah. Uh, combat engineer vehicles. Yes. And mm-hmm. they had the, the turrets on the front. They, oh, no, were, they had, this was in addition, the, they had nine Bradleys and five of these CEVs. Oh, they had 14 wow. of these. Their plan the day of the raid, or I guess Think of the, that fourteen military, yeah, armored military vehicles the, out there just driving around to smashing shit. Fifty-one days, that many casualties, that many wounded. They know that they're not going to go peacefully, and they know there's a good chance. I don't know how much ammunition they thought that they had, but I bet they knew after that first day, like these guys aren't slowing down the firing rate. They probably got a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, so they had like three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building. Well, during the initial ATF raid, those had been damaged. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were down to like, I don't know if it punched a hole in the bottom of it or anything like that, but so they already were going to be short on water. And then eventually the FBI cut all the power and water to the compound. So like sewered and basically survived those inside to survive on rainwater and stockpiled uh, MREs. So like those meals ready to eat that they serve in the military, yep. like they're dehydrated meals. Yeah. Uh, they knew that they, we're still going to have a long longevity with this whole standoff. Eventually they just knew that after 50 days, 51 days, whatever, they had to pull something off. Well, there was a bunch of criticism too, kind of at the, the tactics that they were doing. So basically what they considered the tactics were a like, um, Oh, what did they call it? It was like a sleep and peace and disruptive sound. Um, what there was a term for it. I can't remember what it was. Probably anyway, separation. So yeah, the point is this is they were trying to have sleep disturbance and drive someone crazy when they already viewed the people that they were going up against to be crazy to begin with. They're like, why would you try to go ahead and take any type of rationalism that these people had and then force them to lose that? You do you think you're gonna get the results you want? So two negatives aren't gonna make a positive in mm-hmm. this situation. I I don't think at least because keeping crazy people up at night's just going to drive them crazier. And uh, to know like at night they would be shining spotlights and windows to try to keep people up, the noises that they're playing, the disturbances and all that kind of stuff, that's made to try to push you towards insanity, not to bring you back to sanity to want to leave the compound. Mm-hmm. And all you're doing is seeing it as you're the victim basically because the government's picking on you. They're doing all these terrible things to you. All you've done to them is just try to defend your territory. Mm -hmm. So it has the opposite effect. And there, there were different times they told them not to go up into the bird's nest because they didn't want the Davidians to show like an aggressive strategic position to be able to fire on them if they just wanted to get some rounds off. Mm -hmm. They actually took children up there into the bird's nest as they were surveilling them, and they would hold the children up to the windows. Just to show for the cameras that were going to be on it and everything. Because you know that even though there was an area around the complex where, you know, the military was operating and where the government was operating, that 
the same way that you get footage, any other vantage point probably had national media sitting there mm-hmm. with fucking telephoto lenses oh, yeah. trying to take photos of anything and everything. Because you can look online and you can see that kind of stuff. Hottest story in the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at this point, it's kind of getting toward the end of, you know, the the siege and everything. Or what we'll get, we're going to know is going to be the end of the siege. And they were just basically saying that they had had people that were like theological, like study, like professors and stuff like that, who studied like apocalyptic, how would you say this? Apocalyptism. Apocalyptism. Uh And Koresh had basically during this whole thing, during all of his Bible babble, they were, I mean, they had people studying all this kind of stuff back at the FBI and everything. And actually speaking to him over the phone. Yeah. And so they had determined like, listen, this guy is completely committed to this end of times thing. This isn't going to, they're not going to get his followers, his devoted followers to do anything but follow him. So you're the likelihood would increase for violence and a deadly outcome. They also noticed that the negotiation, you know, discussions with him were becoming more difficult. He'd proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ. He'd been commanded by God in heaven to remain at the compound. Um, at one point they were talking about using snipers just to kill him and other key branch Davidian leaders and then they were kind of concerned that if that happened, there would be a mass suicide, even though, you know, because Jim Jones had happened in 78. And he repeatedly denied any plans for mass suicide when they even confronted him about it or asked him about it. Which he's lied about everything else. What Exactly. Like, Let's... of course, he's. But like, what what have you shown up to this point that makes us even believe that that's off the table? Well, and. He not to get into it because it's just a very long, drawn out talk, but he wanted to change the name to something like the opening of the seventh seal. And basically in Revelation, there's that's seven, what he called them like in private. Mm-hmm, there's seven seals that need to be opened for the second coming and different things happen with these seals. And he was supposed to be the one that was opening these seals in order to bring the rapture. He was telling the government all of this about how they're the ones that are helping him to open these seals. So like, he wasn't like, just get out of here and leave us alone. He was actively egging these guys on. Mm -hmm. And after you get lied to so many times, you just finally have to make a move. You have to act. And I think Janet Reno finally got the go ahead from Clinton on it. Yeah. So she kind of, the way she made her case is a little bit questionable. So she made the FBI's case to Clinton recalling there was an operation in 85 called the covenant, the sword and the arm of the Lord. It was like a siege in Arkansas, I guess, which ended without loss of life by a blockade without a deadline. And Clinton was like, why don't we just do that tactic against the Branch Davidians? And Reno basically countered with, listen, the FBI hostage rescue team, they're tired of waiting. Standoff is costing us a million dollars per week. And honestly, the Branch Davidians could hold out longer. And that, you know, chances of sexual abuse and mass suicide were imminent. And he basically was like, okay, I... I mean, do what you feel is best in this scenario. And that kind of gave the go-ahead for the assault that took place on April 19th, 1993. Thank God it wasn't a day later. Well, dude, so the FBI, the hostage rescue team, their arms included 50 caliber rifles and the armored combat engineering vehicles. Um, And they were basically, what they were going to do is they weren't going in there. it, It was an assault, but they weren't going in there to kill. It no. wasn't like an assault, like you're assaulting the fucking Taliban headquarters or like a raid or anything like that. 
what they were going to do is they were using these armored vehicles. They were going to punch holes in the walls with these armored vehicles because it was like stucco or stone walls. It wasn't like a wood. I don't think it was a wood structure. Maybe it was. I don't know. It, it was wood. They were just looking for entry points for the tear gas. Mm-hmm. But they were also going to break open holes in the wall for escape. So they, they wanted to flush them out. They had to give them a way out. So I think what they were going to do is the the strategy was to punch the holes in the walls to pump the tear gas behind them yep. and then punch the holes in the walls the direction they wanted them all to fan out so they could keep an eye on people. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted a, a safe exit point mm-hmm. to where they could be taken into custody and they could be taken care of. Unfortunately, in doing so, there were fires that were started around the compound and i don't know how flammable tear gas is but i'm assuming that it's decently flammable well it's not that it's so you know sometimes when you see someone throw tear gas in a movie you see that initial spark uh-huh and then all of a sudden you see the tear, it like sparks to kind of ignite it and then the gas starts so there's a couple different types apparently of tear gas grenade there's a pyrokinetic or pyrotechnic tear gas grenade and then there's also ones that just are just the gas so if there was something flammable, I'm not saying just that spark, but apparently these can create a lot of heat, a little bit of explosion before it creates the gas. If it was to fall into some paper or some type, something flammable, it could uh, potentially start a fire. From so, everything that I read, which again, we're going off of what the government's saying. And as we've made clear over many episodes, the government always, or doesn't always tell the truth. I have stuff from like other news sources oh. too. Well, from what I heard was the turrets that punched the holes from the CEVs mm-hmm. were actually the ones that were funneling the tear gas in. So it wasn't necessarily by like grenade that they're throwing the tear gas in. They're pumping it in through oh, no, a they machine. Fired off, no, they fired off a lot of tear gas rounds. D- they were firing off rounds too. Yes. So that definitely could have started the fire. Oh, yeah. they What they did is they basically, because it wasn't just, they pumped gas in. This was just the initial raid. So what they had done is this didn't all take place over, I mean, the initial assault did. But then what they did is they would pump the tear gas in at low pressure to begin with to see if they could just get a few people out. Because they weren't going to full blast them and just be like – because maybe they couldn't see at that point. If they just hit them with like the full force of it, they might not have been able to find their way out. So part of it is the plan started like an increasing amount of tear gas to be pumped in over two days to increase the pressure. Two days? Yes. Jesus. And so on – let's see. So – I'm just kind of looking at the time frame on it. Yeah, their um, hostage rescue team delivered 40 millimeter CS grenade fire from grenade launchers. So those have to fire in. And then I don't know if those are. It does say that some of them were the pyrotechnic ones. So there was something to cause sparks. There was something to cause sparks. But here's the thing, though, the stuff we're going to talk about here in a second. Yeah, there, there were sparks, but there was also. Do you have anything on there about all the spreading of the fuel around the place? Um, I do know that as they were firing in initially, there were um, like fuel fuel holders. Okay, so they when they were delivering some of the part of the negotiations is they would, um, after they cut off some of their supplies and everything, they had to make sure the children could get supplies. The mm. government's not going to... So they, they were, were shipping sending, in milk and all that. They were sending in milk. And what they did is they hid bugs in the milk containers and milk cartons. <laughs> so they were able to get information from inside here and listen into them during a lot of the conversations. And again, depending on what information you believe, this could have been information fabricated to blame the fires on them and not being caused by the actual assault. So grain of salt here. But 
the other side of the story is that it was either caused, like we talked about, with the grenades by the assault team, mm-hmm. or they said over the course of time they would hear like talking about like spreading the fuel around or like taking oh. these canisters and containers down. And they said after they did the investigation, they did find a bunch of like accelerant and all these types of places. They were able to pinpoint the three points where the fires had started. So based on that and the fact that there's that evidence, and I don't know how trustworthy, of course, that yeah. evidence is, it's it's possible it could have been one or the other. It could have also been that that fuel could have been set off by the pyrotechnic grenade rounds. And so, or I mean, it, any of the gunfire going on, there's a million different ways that these fires could have started, which uh, I don't know who to blame. I don't know if there really is somebody to blame because this wasn't ever going to end peacefully. But the way that it does end is these areas catch fire. They aren't, they don't have the fire trucks staged to be able to come in and put out these fires as they're going. So they spread a couple hours after the fires had started. There was an entire back wall of one of the uh, compound houses that just completely falls apart, just completely disintegrates. Mm -hmm. And it all, before they can get these fires out, everything just gets engulfed. And if you watch like any of the old videos or any of the documentaries on it, the way that the fire is licking out of all these windows, it's a very hot raging fire. Like there's no, there's no safe way to in this well there's not but here's the other thing too so in the basement they had this reinforced concrete room that was like a bunker down there and that's where they found like Koresh and like a lot of his like his children and I guess his wives and everything I mean they found people all over but they were basically in a fucking oven yeah they were being cooked alive and that sort of lends into the Total deaths that they found of the Branch Davidians was 76. Uh, and this was post-fire once they got everything out. There were 22 kids, like you say, that were found in the bunker. 14 of them had DNA matches to Koresh. So 14 of his children died in these bunkers. And as they're going through the bodies, they found that there were 20 that had been shot and one that had been stabbed. So basically mercy killings. Like you were talking I about... Read, I read that about the kid. The That... Like... The fuck, yeah, dude. That's as far as the mercy killings, or just how many kids he just had. All of it, man. Yeah, but that the like, mercy killings to me, kind of like you you were talking about about being in that oven and in that heat. There is something to say, like yeah, but like th- that's okay. But that yeah, that but you're planning it. It's not like you're in a fire or like a forest fire and you get surrounded and like the fire's coming to get you. You're basically taking all of them in there today. It's not, mer- you're mm-hmm. killing them. It's not a mercy kill. You're just killing, you've just set them up to be killed and you're now just killing them in a different way. You set up the situation in which they're perishing yeah. in, and you're only taking them out because of that. Well, and here's the other thing too, man, is like the like flame spots, like this fire happens so quickly that I do believe like to some degree there was probably a situation in there that it was set up to burn faster. They wouldn't all be down there in no. that during this assault if, you know. You have also this stockpiling of propane that they had and all these other flammables that they are they spreading. Had, they had explosions around. occur during this. Yeah. I mean, there was an explosion on the left side of the compound, um, roof collapse. Just it the entire a- compound essentially was leveled. And the only reason that, you know, 
they were able to actually go in and identify is because, again, they were in this basement after they got all this stuff cleared off that they were able to find find these bodies. And when they found Koresh, he had not only the gunshot wounds from the ATF, he had one between the eyes. He died next to his lieutenant, his kind of second in command. Uh, was it Martin you yeah, were talking about? So. Um, he also had a gunshot, so they're assuming that this was a murder-suicide in order to not die of either asphyxiation or being burned to death or anything like that. So they, they took that way out. They didn't just shoot and stab the kids in order to mercy kill them. They, they did it to themselves too. So this is where we kind of get the government interference. And like we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes, the government story isn't always the story. There's always certain things. There are some that are, but in this situation, I think that, there was so much back and forth that there was no way they were ever going to take the blame for what happened. Like, here's the other thing, too, that I don't get about this. So the the job of this during the raid, like, and I understand to a degree they have, um, I don't know what the communication was like between, like, Koresh and the negotiators, whether he was like, hey, we're all fortified in this room, all the kids are in this room, and they had an idea to believe that all the kids were safe or, like, just the people in there. But you're taking literally you're taking tanks and you're punching holes in walls and knocking down walls just under the assumption that there's no one fucking behind those walls or standing in those rooms. You're not going to smush some kid with a tank. Yeah. Like, I understand that at this point that it's the reasoning for I don't know. This is one of those things where, like, there's no there's no good guy Uh -uh. in this scenario. You almost have to get down into the mud and be as shitty as there to take care of it. And I, I'm i not always pro-government intervention in these things because I do think that the sanctity of saving a life is very important. I just don't know if it really would have mattered. Mm-hmm. I, like, how long would this have gone on for there to be a peaceful resolution? It just never would have happened. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, you got to get down into the mud and you got to play that game with him, which ultimately makes him look better because there is this government questioning of their practices and their procedures. I just, I feel like sometimes when you run into a situation like this, you kind of have to get down with them and finish it off. It's it's not the right outcome. It's not the one that you want. But yeah, what's the other choice? What's plan I guess, B? I guess this is, I guess this is the thing to take away from this is if anything, this is a standoff between David Koresh and the government. Because I think, how many of these people do you think were like optimistically, I guess, Percentage wise, how many of these people do you think were like, I don't really want to be in here? Do you think there were any like the kids? Of course, like that's like, okay, then I'm just going to focus on the kids and say like, like that's so like for, for them to involve like children. This always hits me more like with kids since having a kid, just like the simple fact of like, how do you, how do you choose that life for your kid? If you think that it's the best thing for you, you're going to want the best for your kid. And unfortunately, when you deal with people that fall into these kind of mind-bending scenarios, mm-hmm. they're not the victims. Their children are the victims because yeah. they were never got never got to choose. I didn't know this, but apparently um, Joaquin and River Phoenix were in um, a sex cult when they were younger. I, I think I've heard something about and that. We'll cover the people that they were a part of eventually in their cult, but 
you don't realize the damage that you do to children. Obviously, River Phoenix was a very depressed person. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of shit going on. And Joaquin, I don't know how he still survived, but even just dipping your toe into something that's going to change your kid's psychological behavior, because all those kids that got released, Mm -hmm. their parents stayed. So they were orphans as soon as this whole fire happened. Sexually assaulted and abused orphans. Yep. And now they have to figure out their way on the outside without their parents, without hopefully their families and shit took them in, but they're going to carry this throughout their life. Like, I I don't know if it's better to die in the fire than have to live through this and try to deal with that trauma. Well, I'm going to say live through it and try to, try to just. Because you're still alive. Try to just carry it in the smallest bag you can. Yeah. Like, I know that's asking a lot and I'm not meaning to gloss over that and everything, but like, at least give your life has an opportunity. You weren't, you you didn't have the opportunity to choose if you wanted to live that life, you know? Now you have the opportunity to make it better and to make it out and to be the success it can't story. Get, I'm sorry to say, but like it can't get worse. And honestly, for those kids that did lose their parents and everything, maybe that was the best thing to happen to them. Does that make, is that really yeah, a fresh start? Because those parents were never going to take them down yeah. a road that was going to be good because they didn't the first time. I'm going to, you know what? I don't care if that sounds, I'm going to, that's going to be my, that's going to be my happy note to end the episode. <laughs> is that good for those kids that got out? Yeah. I, they had a new lease on life. They were hopefully taken care of. And I don't know, I, I mean, what financials could they ever glean from it to try to start a new life, but. Hopefully the counseling and everything is free and has mm-hmm. been continued because those kids have had a long, long life already. All right, man. You got anything else? Nope. I think we're covered. All right. Thanks for joining us again, guys. Later. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.